Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Supreme Court judges. We have powers that are positively regal. Only we can take the law and make it legal. With the AKs, who did the OKs? So that's actually kind of the refrain of that song. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Supreme Court justices. And, you know, as we got ready for this show, I was thinking maybe we should book Michael Feinstein as a guest, you know, because he'd have to rewrite it for the Gershwins. They're not around. They can't defend their work anymore. If we're going to change the structure of the Supreme Court, there's going to be musical consequences. That's my point. Um, we are going to talk about changing the structure of the Supreme Court. We're going to try to avoid the P word as much as possible. Uh, but let's just take a moment before we begin to reflect upon groupings of nine, which is what we have now, right? So the original Wu-Tang Clan, nine members. Number of ladies dancing in the 12 days of Christmas, nine. A baseball lineup, of course, is nine. The Nazgul in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the ring wraiths, nine of those. Uh, there were nine muses in Greek mythology, and actually there's a word for a group of nine. It's called an ennead. It's kind of a crossword puzzle word, uh, but it comes from Egyptian mythology. There were nine Heliopolis gods. And then, of course, there's, you know, a book about the Supreme Court, a 2007 nonfiction book about the Supreme Court called The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. It's by legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. <coughs> Sorry, I had something caught in my throat. Um, so, you know, I, nine is what we're used to, but there's some talk about changing that. Uh, there's a, some talk about expanding. We should point out there were six at the beginning, dropped down to five, went back up to six. There have been a number of configurations, gotten as big as 10, I think, uh, maybe not bigger than that. Um, FDR contemplated 15 at one point. Uh, but as you'll also hear, First of all, we have to figure out what's wrong. Second of all, we have to figure out what it is that we want to accomplish. And third of all, we have to figure out what's the best way to accomplish that thing. And we've got great guests here to do that. Uh, we'll also talk about what happens in state appellate courts, which nobody pays any attention to whatsoever. Uh, but they have their own story about expanding and contracting. And towards the end, we'll talk about one of my favorite topics, which is that the real problem actually is with the Constitution. The Constitution is what's screwing everything up. Uh, everybody is always so high on the Constitution. Not me. Uh, anyway, I mean, no, I respect the Constitution, of course, but it's slightly overrated. Joining us right now is Ian Milheiser, a senior correspondent at Vox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court and the Constitution. He's a noted Gershwin uh, expert as well and the author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted, which, as we know, is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, Ian Milheiser, welcome to our show. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. So let's begin. Obviously, the Republicans have gained a six to three majority on the Supreme Court. I mean, if we are going to classify justices by party and party of appointment, uh, th that appears to be the case. So I guess the, the first question is, 
What's the problem? If we're going to say that there's something that needs redressing, something that needs fixing, what's the thing that needs to, what's the argument that something needs to be fixed? So I think there's two possible arguments there. I mean, one is just that you're not going to like the public policy decisions that'll come from a very conservative Supreme Court. And I don't think that that's a very good argument for adding justices to the court. You know, I'll get into a bit. There's a high price to be paid if you do that. And just that you don't like their public policy decisions. I don't think that that's enough. The other argument, and this is a very strong argument, is an argument that sounds in democracy. So first of all, like the reason we are here, we have a president who was not elected. Donald Trump lost the uh, popular vote by nearly three million votes. We've had three justices in American history, all of them appointed by Trump, who were nominated by a president who lost the popular vote and confirmed by a block of senators who represent less than half the country. So the Republicans owe their majority to these anti-democratic features of our system. And on top of that, the Republican majority, and I'll get into a lot of detail about this on the Supreme Court, is very hostile specifically to voting rights. And so the danger, if the makeup of the court is not changed, is that a majority that only exists because of anti-democratic problems makes our just dismantles our voting rights and makes it so that we are no longer able to solve our problems democratically in the future. And that, I think, is a good reason to think about changing the makeup of the Supreme Court. Right. So part of the argument is to reference what I was saying earlier, some of the problems with this, with the Constitution. So the Constitution is set up in such a way that, yes, in fact, I think um, only in the last seven presidential cycles, I could be wrong about this, I think in the last seven presidential cycles, only once <laughs> has a Republican won the popular vote. Right. And that would have been Bush in his uh, second election, W. Bush in his second election. So, you know, very typically you can have the popular vote not matter the way it's supposed to uh, because of the Electoral College. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other problems as well. And then, of course, yeah, the Senate is set up once again to be non-representative, doesn't map well onto uh, any kind of popular vote. And most cycles, I think if you add up total votes cast in all Senate races, in a given cycle, the Democrats uh, come out ahead of the Republicans, but they, of course, don't necessarily come out of uh, ahead on seats. So you've got that structurally baked into the process unless the Constitution is changed. But what you're saying is that the Supreme Court, then a political minority that has a majority of the Supreme Court, can further mess around with the electoral process to make it even less representative. Give some examples. Um, so, okay, so the b biggest example we've seen from this court has been what it's done to the Voting Rights Act. Um, the Voting Rights Act is the primary shield we have against racist voter discrimination. It's why we just don't have Jim Crow anymore. And this Voting Rights Act has three prongs. Um, the first prong is called preclearance. It says that if a state has a history of racist voting discrimination, then before it enacts a new elections policy, that policy has to be pre-cleared with officials in Washington, D.C. And the Supreme Court basically dismantled preclearance several years ago in a case called Shelby County. Um, the second prong of the Voting Rights Act is the intent test. Um, the intent test says that if a law is enacted for the purpose of discriminating against people because of their race, um, then it is invalid. Um, but in a case called Abbott v. Perez, 
the Supreme Court made it almost impossible to prove racist intent. I mean, they, they place such a high burden on voting rights plaintiffs that very few are going to be able to prevail. And then the third prong is known as the results test, which is that if you enact a law and regardless of what the intent of the legislature was, if it results in a bunch of people of color being disenfranchised, then that law is invalid as well. And John Roberts, the chief justice of the United States, you know, has opposed the results test his entire career. He tried to get President Reagan to veto the bill that established the results test. He suggested that it's unconstitutional. He is the most moderate member of the Republican majority on the Supreme Court. And there is a case out of Arizona that is in front of the Supreme Court right now, will probably be decided in June, that could potentially dismantle the results test. So like, I've got many more examples of how the Supreme Court has undermined voting rights. But if you know anything about the history of the United States and you know voting rights in the United States, you know that race is so often used as an excuse to disenfranchise voters. And the Supreme Court seems to be systematically dismantling the legal protections that we have against voting rights and it's lo- and against racial voting discrimination. And it looks like it's going to get worse. So notwithstanding any of that and not discounting any of that, you know, there's there's a little bit of a historical precedent that when we start having the kinds of conversations that we've been having lately, mm-hmm. the court notices and sometimes gets a little nervous. So, you know, right around the time FDR was talking about enlarging the court, one justice who had been part of the conservative bloc, Owen Roberts, switched his vote in a key case. Uh, and um, it seemed as though there was a little bit more room dispositionally on the court from then on for some of the New Deal cases that came before it. Now, right now, we've got a whole bunch of cases that are kind of bubbling on the stove. And just last night, we're talking on Thursday, I should say, uh, but the Supreme Court refused to hear the fast track plea from Pennsylvania Republicans to block the three-day extension of the deadline on absentee ballots. Uh, They also declined to block the lower court rulings that allow six extra days for accepting ballots sent by mail uh, in North Carolina. These are both, you know, substantially victories for Democrats seeking uh, to have more votes counted in this election. So I don't know. I mean, do you buy any of the idea that the more scrutiny they get, the more they're sort of thinking, well, we don't want to be too predictable here? So I'm going to disagree with you for a second. I don't think that those two orders we got yesterday were victories for Democrats or for democracy. Um, If you look at the Pennsylvania case, and so the issue in that case is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that votes, ballots that arrive, I believe, within three days of Election Day that were mailed before Election Day will be counted. The Pennsylvania Republican Party wants those ballots trashed. And they asked the U.S. Supreme Court to order those ballots trashed. The U.S. Supreme Court did not say we're not going to trash those ballots. Justice Alito wrote a a concurring opinion, or I think it was a statement, but he wrote an opinion where he said, look, for now, we're not deciding this issue. We, we, We are leaving this question of whether these ballots are going to be trashed unresolved before the election. But after the election, this issue could come up again. After the election, we might consider this. So if the election is close in Pennsylvania or if the election is close in North Carolina, um, the Supreme Court has explicitly said, or at least Justice Alito has explicitly said, that he is reserving the right to toss out those ballots after they've already been cast. Now, imagine that. I mean, it would be one thing 
if the Supreme Court before the election and before any ba- anyone casts their, their ballots says, hey, like we're going to make it harder to vote, but this is what the rules are now. Everyone knows what they are. Make sure you follow the rules. That's not what the Supreme Court is saying. The Supreme Court is saying we are not going to tell you what the rules are until after the election. And we may very well throw out your ballot because the thing that you thought was the rules. And the thing that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court told you was the rules. In fact, we're going to change that rule. And that's that's not a victory for democracy. I mean, that's the worst thing I can imagine for democracy, that voters cannot be confident whether or not their ballot will be counted. So um, duly noted (laughs) and and much, (laughs) much more detailed than my primitive understanding of those cases had been. So uh, so thanks for that. Um, So. Let me just give you another possible argument to just you can bat out of the sky as well. So, there, you know, one one way that this gets talked about sometimes is that it's a mistake to feel as though you can be predictive about the behavior uh, of Supreme Court justices that, in fact, you know, I mean, well, Frankfurter and, and Wizard White, they kind of tracked right of where the Democrats who appointed them thought they would go. But then there's that long list, Earl Warren and then Brennan, Blackman, Stevens, Souter, all disappointed the Republican presidents who appointed them. All were heavily associated with liberal rulings. Kennedy and O'Connor were Reagan appointees. They wound up becoming really more the swing uh, justices on their courts as opposed to really doctrinaire conservatives. So there is sort of that, well, let's wait and see what this court is really like uh, argument. What do you make of that? Yeah, I I think that presidents and not just presidents, but parties just pay a lot more attention to who's being appointed than used to be the case. I mean, historically, you can point to my favorite example of is Justice McReynolds, who was a nightmare. I mean, he did things like strike down child labor laws. And the way that Justice McReynolds got on the court is that he was Woodrow Wilson's attorney general. And he was just a jerk. Woodrow Wilson couldn't stand him. So Wilson put him on the Supreme Court so we wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. So we get get him out of his cabinet. So like presidents have made dumb decisions in the past and they haven't been as thoughtful about who they were appointing in the past. That is just not the case anymore. Um, right. you know, You've you, got a well-documented grooming process that starts with the Federalist Society, right? It, exactly. Yeah. The Federalist Society is a conservative organization that literally starts screening lawyers in their first year at Harvard Law School to find out whether or not they'll like A, they're smart enough, but B, they're ideologically pure enough to remain on the court. Um, Presidents, you know, just take a lot of care now to look at the records of their nominees. And I mean, I think this is true about both parties. I mean, if you look at Justice Sotomayor or Justice Kagan or, you know, Obama's two appointees, you know, they have voted more or less in line with how the Democratic Party says it wants justices to behave. And I think that what we're going to see from Trump's appointees, what we have already seen from you know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the two that have been up there, is they vote fairly consistently with the Republican Party's preference, and especially on the issue of voting rights. And again, I want to emphasize this. Doesn't matter what they do on anything else. Doesn't matter what they do on abortion, on health care, on marriage equality, on anything. If you don't have voting rights, you have nothing. Because without voting rights, you just have no ability to shape your government. 
All right. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the P word lately and uh, the notion that the Democrats in a vengeful mood with Merrick Garland and other issues on their minds might, uh, if they had enough control, uh, add members to the court to dilute the 6-3 majority. But first of all, let's hear what the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, has to say about this most recently. If elected, what I will do is I'll put together a national commission of bipartisan commission of scholars, constitutional scholars, Democrats, Republicans, liberal, conservative. And I will uh, ask them to, over uh, 180 days, come back to me with recommendations as to how to uh, reform the court system because it's getting out of whack. Um, the way in which it's ha- being handled. And it's not about court packing. There's a number of other things that our constitutional scholars have debated, and I'd look to see what recommendations that commission might make. So you're telling us you're going to s- study this issue about whether to pack the court? No, whether there's a number of alternatives that are go well beyond packing. This is a live ball. Oh, it is a live ball. No, it is a live ball. We're going to have to do that. And you're going to find there's a lot of conservative constitutional scholars who are saying it as well. The last thing we need to do is turn the Supreme Court into just a political football. Whoever has the most votes gets whatever they want. Presidents come and go. Supreme Court justices stay for generations. So, Ian Milheiser, I'm going to get you on that uh, commission. Um, I know. I, I'd love to be on that commission. <laughs> and and once, you, once you're on that commission, you're in possession of a whole bunch of different ideas that are not, let's say, the P word packing, uh, are in fact different, have been proposed over the years. Let's uh, run through some greatest hits here. Uh, maybe we can start with the one that uh, Pete Buttigieg had embraced uh, at one point, uh, which is kind of an intentionally less partisan configuration, uh, I think, of 15, but say more about that. Yeah. So Pete Buttigieg's idea was that, and it's actually two law professors, uh, Dan Epps and Ganesh Sitaraman, who originally came up with this plan, is you have a 15 justice court, five picked by Democrats, five picked by Republicans, and then five in the middle who are chosen by the other 10. And so the idea is that this way you will tend to get a less partisan court because the controlling votes will be held by those five in the middle that are acceptable to both parties. And, you know, in theory, I think that could work. I mean, I I think that the long term goal here, what we do not want is a situation where you have a Republican Supreme Court now that does what the Republican Party wants and then Democrats get in power and they just put in place a Democratic Supreme Court that does whatever the Democratic Party wants. That's not a good outcome. If we can get to some kind of a nonpartisan resolution, we want to get there. The problem is, is that I think the only way to entrench such a compromise is through a constitutional amendment, because, you know, Biden could try to put in the Buttigieg plan um, by legislation. But if a Republican gets elected after him, that Republican can just turn around and pack the court with 100 Republicans unless there's a constitutional amendment. So my recommendation would be this. Just do straight up court packing first. You just, you know, add six justices to the court, make it I guess that would make it a nine to six Democratic court and then have negotiation because then the party that wants democracy can negotiate from a position of strength. I could say to the Republican Party, look, the status quo right now is terrible for you. We are willing to get rid of this status quo that you hate 
But in order for that to happen, you have to agree to a constitutional amendment where and, you know, there's many different ways to do this, where we have a nonpartisan court and not a Republican court like we have now or not a Democratic court like we could have in six months. All right. Let's try another one. So, oh, you know, in 1789, um, when a lot of this was being framed, um, the average male lifespan was somewhere between 36 and 38 years. Uh, it's now something like 79 years and 30 year Supreme Court justice terms are almost commonplace at this point. The seat that Kagan holds right now prior to her was for 71 years shared by two people, first Brennan, then Stevens, you know, so got, people get old in these jobs. Right. Uh, and I don't think the people who created uh, the idea of lifetime appointments had any idea how old people are going to get. So how about uh, age limit, term limit, something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's good arguments for term limits. You know, there's lots of ideas to reform the Supreme Court without changing the number of justices. There's term limits. There are proposals to strip some of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction so it just can't hear a case seeking to strike down the Voting Rights Act or a case seeking to strike down Obamacare. Those are all options that are on the table. I think the problem that you have with all of those proposals is that unless you do them via constitutional amendment, they can be struck down by the Supreme Court. And it seems to me that if you pass uh, an act of Congress which says, hey, you guys, you think you have this job for life, but actually all of you who've been here more than 18 years have got to go and the rest of you are going to be kicked off pretty soon, probably the the current justice is going to say, we don't like that arrangement. We're going to strike it down. So, you know, again, I mean, I think there's a lot of great reforms and we we want to get to an end point where we have a nonpartisan court. We have a court that fairly applies the law. I think that term limits could be a good part of that resolution. But we need to make sure that whatever that resolution is, it can't be struck down by the Supreme Court and it can't be reversed by the next president. And that means that you have to have some sort of way to bring both parties to the table and enshrine a permanent settlement. Right. I mean, ultimately, what we want is a Supreme Court or a set of Supreme Court decisions that at least track somewhere towards the the middle of uh, of America, not an aviary, aviary full of rare birds who are selected because they're exotically conservative, which right. seems to be like the, the direction that we're going in. So another way to do this would be to somehow or other reduce the court's scope, right? Reduce yep. the power of the court, restrict some of the things that it could decide about. Say something about that. Yeah, I mean, this is the jurisdiction stripping idea. Um, I think that it's not a solution in and of itself, because like I said, you can say to the Supreme Court, we're not going to let you hear Voting Rights Act cases. And the Supreme Court could say, yeah, we're just going to strike that law down and then we're going to hear a, a Voting Rights Act case. So you need to you know, you, you, you can't leave if you're trying to limit the Supreme Court's power. You can't be in a situation where you have to ask the Supreme Court permission in order to limit its power. But I do think that, you know, some sort of plan to limit, you know, you know, it's, it's a problem that the one unelected branch has this much power in our society. It's a good idea to limit that power. I do think that jurisdiction stripping makes a lot of sense um, when you look at the lower federal courts. You know, one problem that we've seen over and over again is that 
there's a party that doesn't like, you know, if Obama's president, the Republican Party doesn't like one of his policies. If Trump is president, um, the, the Democrats don't like his policies. And there are over 800 district judges in this country. So they go shopping around to get the most liberal or the most district conservative district judge in the country to strike down whatever the policy is that they don't like. And then that injunction sometimes stays in place for months or for years. And we don't want a situation where Biden signs a voting rights law and the Trumpiest judge in the country strikes it down on day one. Or for that matter, Biden signs a bill adding more justices to the Supreme Court and the Trumpiest judge in the country strikes it down at day one. So I think that jurisdiction stripping has a place, especially when you look at these lower courts that might act in very reactionary ways. But again, like, you know, it's not going to work if we're trying to limit the Supreme Court by asking it permission to limit the Supreme Court. We need to move towards a permanent settlement. And I think the first step of that is probably going to require adding seats to the Supreme Court. All right. Well, we're going to uh, stop there. Not that I couldn't talk to you a lot longer about this, uh, because there's still some other ideas that we haven't touched about. Well, let me ask you one last thing. Sure. OK, just because I mean, one argument that uh, often gets uh, bodied forth is that idea that, well, the real power of the court usually lies in the middle. Now, uh, admittedly, the middle is an abacus bead that keeps getting slid a little bit further to the right. But that the powerful people on the court, you know, I talked about O'Connor and Kennedy before right. that. Now it's kind of Roberts, maybe Kavanaugh going to turn out to be kind of a, a, a mean or middle justice, that that's where the power is anyway. The power doesn't sit out on the extremes. I mean, you've kind of already addressed this with some of the voting rights decisions and stuff like that. But maybe you'd like to say more about this, that, you know, some people will say, well, don't worry so much about, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, because she's going to be way out on the right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you put not any nine people in a room, you know, pick nine random names out of the phone book, like four of them are going to be the most conservative out of those nine. And four of them are going to be the most liberal out of those nine. And one of them is going to be in the middle. And like that person in the middle is going to wind up being the deciding vote on most issues. The problem is, and like right now, the person in the middle is probably Brett Kavanaugh, is that Brett Kavanaugh is extremely conservative. So, you know, whereas like 30 years ago, we might have been litigating cases about, say, you know, whether we should expand the right to vote, whether there should be additional protections for racial minorities. You know, those might be the sort of cases that came up to the Supreme Court and someone like a Justice Powell or a Justice O'Connor would be in the middle of that Supreme Court dealing with these cases that could have a liberal result. Now, you know, the cases that are coming up are, should we just throw out 80,000 ballots in Wisconsin for no particular reason? Or, you know, shall we tell voters in Pennsylvania and North Carolina who have already voted that we're changing the rules for how they have to vote? And, oh, look, they didn't follow these new rules that we just created. So we're going to toss out their their ballots as well. And yeah, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh is the swing vote on those questions. I don't actually know how Brett Kavanaugh is going to vote on the, the question of whether ballots can be thrown out when people followed the rules at the time when that ballot was cast. But the mere fact that we're relying on him to make that decision is, you know, it, it, it shows that the court has, has come out of balance. Yeah. He is too far to the right to be in the center. Right. He's probably going to want to know what Squee thinks about it before he makes his mind. <laughs> Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court and the Constitution. Uh, his book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting uh, the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Uh, thanks for doing this, sir. 
Oh, thank you. Hope you'll come back. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something that you never think about. And yes, I'm intentionally scolding you, and that is state appellate courts. You don't know anything about the Connecticut state appellate courts, I guarantee you. Number nine, 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 number nine. So this show is about kind of what to do about the Supreme Court, uh, make it bigger, do something else. And we're going to talk a little bit right now about what happens in that regard uh, in the much less scrutinized area of state appellate courts. Uh, I am willing to bet that most people listening to me could not name one of the seven Supreme Court justices here in Connecticut, where most of you live. Uh, I will tell you, interestingly, considering the conversations that we've been having, that six of the seven were appointed by Governor Dan Malloy. And now, uh, because of the senior status of Justice Palmer, who was appointed years ago by Governor Weicker, uh, Ned Lamont has been able to appoint his. So anyway, all seven of them are Democratic appointments, despite the fact that there was a 15-year interregnum of Rowland and Rell as governors. Just what, the way things worked out. But that's not what we're going to talk about here with our guest, uh, Marin K. Levy, a professor of law at Duke University and uh, the author of Packing and Unpacking State Courts, published in the William and Mary Law Review earlier this year. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I have to tell you, I've been spending the last 20 minutes trying to come up with a good Gershwin joke for you. I'm not sure I got that far. I was like, we could change the man I love to the court I love. That's about all I got. You know, I appreciate the effort. Uh, the, the effort's really what's important to me. Uh, all right. So, um, so what you looked at is the question, I mean, we think of this this idea, one thing that I forgot to bring up with Ian is that, you know, when Roosevelt was floating the idea of quote unquote packing, one of the things that he said it was that every time a judge turned 70 and didn't retire, that's when he was going to add another justice. Right. Uh, he, he sort of thought this would be kind of a thing where you would get new blood by threatening them with extra justices. <laughs> but you, you looked at what happens in the states all, all the time, or not all the time, but with some frequency, this idea of playing with the numbers uh, is, is not as rare as maybe we think it is. So tell us more. Absolutely. And I think the story at the at the state court level is fascinating. So I came to this um, a few years ago. I had just come back actually from a conference where we were talking about how strong the norm against court packing is. You know, folks are saying this is taboo. We, we're just not going to see this at, at the Supreme Court anytime soon. Um, and then I, I discovered that in my own home state, North Carolina, the General Assembly had just succeeded in unpacking the Court of Appeals. So they had taken that court down from 15 seats to 12. Um, at the time, it was said it was because the, the case filings had dropped, but that story didn't add up. And it, it turned out it really was a political move. It was a way to keep the governor, who was a Democrat, from appointing um, three more folks to the court because there were going to be some retirements coming up. And it just seemed like such a disconnect here. We say at the federal level, you know, we don't have court packing. And yet it was happening in my own backyard. Um, so that's what really led me to look into this and to think, you know, could this be much more widespread? And in fact, um, after doing the research, I found it really is. And it, it appears that the people who prefer this uh, at the state level, as opposed to at the current federal level, would be Republicans. This, this happened more in Republican-led states, correct? Absolutely. So if you look back over the last 10 years, um, we see... Uh, over 20 different bills being introduced, um, you know, in state legislatures, trying to 
pack or unpack the state Supreme Court. Um, this is done in 11 different states, and the vast majority of these efforts were spearheaded by Republicans. Um, now, there's an interesting question there about why that is. So I think part of the story, presumably, is that we have um, far more of these legislators controlled by Republicans, right? So they really have more of an opportunity to make this kind of move. But this may also be a story about um, the kind of constitutional hardball. You know, folks have, have made this point at the federal level that Republicans just seem much more willing to engage in this kind of hardball. And it may be that we're seeing that at the state level, too. So uh, we should get a couple of specific examples. I love Florida, where it's like comes some kind of orthopedic practice, you know, where some people just do ankles and some people just do shoulders or something. Uh, they were going to try to su- split the court into two different specialty divisions. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so this is pretty uncommon at the state level that you would have, in effect, two Supreme Courts. Um, you'd have a civil court of last resort and a criminal one. That was the proposal on the table in Florida. Um, if you read the finer print, though, it was a little bit clever. It was basically then going to add three seats to the civil court, uh, which was thought to be the much more prominent court. You know, it's going to deal with the big constitutional issues. And then we're going to sideline a lot of the Democrats over to that criminal court. Um, so that ended up passing in the state House, failed in the state Senate. But that was pretty seriously considered. Um, if we had time, uh, maybe we would do Montana, which is, which is also kind of crazy. But we should probably concentrate a little bit on Arizona and Georgia. These are kind of the signal cases, uh, I think, in a way, of signal instances anyway. So, so tell us about each of those. Absolutely. So both Arizona and Georgia had successful attempts uh, to pack the state Supreme Court, both in 2016. So if you go back to Arizona, um, we have a Republican lawmaker introducing House Bill 2537, which sought to take the court from five to seven justices. Um, The Republican-controlled legislature approves the measure. You have no support from Democrats. And I think really importantly, you have no support from any of the sitting justices. And in fact, the chief justice at the time, Scott Bales, very widely respected, wrote to the governor to say, this really just isn't warranted. We don't have the caseload to support the increase. And moreover, it would be pretty expensive to do this. And we have so many needs that are underfunded right now. Um, nevertheless, the um, again, the, the bill passed, governor signs it into law, and then subsequently um, ends up appointing uh, two more justices, really takes the court further to the right. Um, yeah, so, so there's that's an amazing thing. All five justices said, don't do this. We don't want two more. And you, well, you got them anyway. Uh, uh, let's try Georgia. This, is, this one happened, I believe, after several failed uh, attempts. Uh, what eventually did happen? Absolutely. So Georgia, it's a pretty similar story, Um, although there we actually saw much wider spread court reform. Um, So this was an effort also to expand the Court of Appeals and um, a bunch of other things concerning jurisdiction. But for our purposes, the key point was that um, Republicans sought to expand the Supreme Court um, from seven to nine. And here the interesting part is looking at what the the justices look like before this effort. So uh, in 2016, before this succeeded, we had four Democratic and three Republican appointees. So it really was ripe for for court packing. Um, And then we have a Republican governor coming in, appointing two new justices. And again, folks said it really took the court um, to a more conservative direction. Um, actually, let's just grab a couple of minutes here and talk about Montana, just because it's kind of ah. funny. I mean, it was sort of like uh, everybody who believes in tort reform take two steps forward. Okay, you guys are out of here, right? This it actually kind of almost came down to a single issue. 
It did. And I, I think, um, you know, part of what we see there again, right. So, we, so this is a, a bill that went to committee and it had a hearing. So, you know, we're taking it pretty seriously. Um, part of the effort there was to, to squeeze the court. So we're going to unpack the state Supreme court. Um, and, and then the justices are going to be much more sympathetic to tort reform. But the other part of the story was, um, I think the, the lawmakers who were trying to push this through wanted the court to be more receptive to upcoming districting, redistricting, redistricting efforts led by Republicans. I um, mean, the, the quote is, I mean, you can't make this up. So one of the lawmakers said in the hearing, we really need to take control of the reins of the Supreme Court. We need to show them who is in charge. Um, so that's, you know, they're, they're, they're playing pretty serious hardball, I think. Right. So overall lesson, you get down to the state level, people are not noticing the moat in their own eye, no, the beam in their own eye. They're worrying about the moat in the other eye. I always get that one screwed up. But this is <laughs> really fascinating stuff. And thank you so much, Marin Levy, for joining us today, professor of law at Duke University. Uh, her article, Packing and Unpacking State Courts, published in the William and Mary Law Review earlier this year. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. This is really fun. And the Gershwin uh, stab you took too. That that's the extra points there. Uh, <laughs> a for <all> right. effort. <laughs> we're gonna we're going to take a little break, and then we are going to do something that I really enjoy doing, which is complain about the U.S. Constitution. The goats in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the All right, quick, 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 because I need a lot of time for this segment. Uh, we got to thank Cat Pastor as usual. She's in the studio, making everything work the way it's supposed to work. Very lucky to have her, as I am lucky to have senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who produced this particular episode. Uh, I would tell you what's on the show tomorrow, but I'm no longer allowed to. Uh, but I will tell you that if you're listening like on Thursday, next week, we're, we're going to go into really heavy election coverage. And Monday will be just a show that's essentially all calls. You'll be allowed to call up. You'll be encouraged to call up and talk about whatever you're thinking about as we head into Tuesday. Tuesday, every year, every election cycle, we do the same show, which is we get citizen observers. Uh, these are people who have jobs completely unrelated to uh, to politics. Sometimes they are New Yorker cartoonists or MacArthur Grant receiving jugglers or farmers or sculptors or but they could be anything. And we just talk about them. Uh, we talk to them about the experience of voting. We don't ask them who they voted for. It's just how it felt, what was going on. That will be very interesting this year because a lot of them won't have even voted on Election Day. So many people are doing otherwise. All right. Time to talk about the Constitution, which I love to do. I'm excited to have Julie Sook, uh, who is a Florence Rogatz, who is the Florence Rogatz visiting professor of law, I think, at Yale Law School and professor of sociology, political science and liberal studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Her new book is We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. And she recently wrote a piece about our undemocratic a constitution for the Boston Review. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So whenever this comes up, I always start in the same place, which is with the process. So today, if you were going to do something important and you said, what we're going to do is we're going to have 55 white men, white men get together. There's not going to be transparency. They're going to be behind closed doors with access to lots of alcohol uh, and like whatever they come up with. That's what we're going to do. 
I, you know, you would be shouted out of the public square for this. We're going to create a foundational document that's going to govern everybody, but women aren't going to participate in it because we don't know too much about women. We're all men, uh, and people of color are not really going to, you know, be given equal status because we're not people of color. We own people of color, but we are not people of color. I mean, right away you start wondering about originalism. <laughs> you wonder about why we would rely on this particular group of people with so much and why we would make the document so hard to amend. So maybe we should start there. One of the answers whenever people make complaints like that is, well, if you don't like it, fix it. But it's really hard to do, right? That's absolutely right. So we have an amendment rule in the Constitution, Article 5, and it makes the Constitution deliberately very difficult to amend. In fact, originally, uh, the slave trade was unamendable until 1808. Uh, and uh, you need as a general matter, most of the amendments that we have in the Constitution used one of the methods uh, prescribed by Article 5, which is that you need two-thirds of Congress and then ratifications by three-fourths of the states. Uh, that's extremely difficult to get that level of consensus. And, um, and in addition to that, Article 5 makes it so that the equal representation of the states in the Senate uh, can never be changed unless every state consents. Right. I mean, in other words, some of the difficulty of amending the Constitution is priced into the Constitution by the way the Senate is structured. The role that the Senate would have uh, in approving uh, an amendment to go forward uh, bumps up against the way the Senate is set up and the fact that it's you know nothing close to one person, one vote. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so so you're you, you kind of start there and, and then you notice that, I mean, if you have any doubt about how, how hard this is, I always say pop quiz to, you know, people who are arguing with me. When was the last uh, constitutional amendment passed? I believe it was 1992. And I think it was an amendment that had started in 1789. It had something to do with Congress not being able to increase its own pay or something. But, you know, there's like important things we need to do that you know, are really, really difficult to do. And we, hence, once again, I mean, if you, uh, John Paul Stevens did a whole book about this, right? Like six things that you, we should do right away, but you can't do Absolutely. any of those things. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So the last time we had a constitutional amendment was in the last century in 1992. And that amendment was written by James Madison, uh, <laughs> who was, you know, one of the 55 uh, men you referenced earlier. Uh, and, uh, and so we haven't had an amendment in a long time, even though there have certainly been proposals. And it's largely because you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress. Uh, and uh, the Senate, in particular, is not designed uh, to be proportionately representative of the people. Uh, and without two-thirds of the Senate, you would never um, even get close to an amendment. Uh, even when you have two-thirds of both houses of Congress, as we did with the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, you then need three-fourths of the states. Um, that's 38 of the states. Uh, and um, so that's also very difficult. And it's really the state legislatures. And what's remarkable about the U.S. Constitution uh, is that there's really no role for the people, no direct role for the people. So many of our state constitutions have ballot initiatives, uh, and many of our state constitutions involve a referendum by a majority of the people to ratify a constitutional amendment. For us, uh, the whole process is organized uh, through the states, uh, first by having the Senate, which uh, represents the states equally, uh, have essentially veto power, uh, and, um, and also by requiring three-fourths of the states uh, to ratify. Even another method which has never been used, uh, which you find in Article 5, uh, the convention method, um, 
it seems to perhaps uh, give more power to the people, but it's really by way of the states. Our constitution assumes uh, that the states uh, will always represent the people. So it's the states that would apply uh, to have a constitutional amendment uh, that would then propose, um, or sorry, a constitutional convention that would then propose amendments that would then also have to be ratified by the states. You know, when I get into conversations about this, too, another thing people say is, well, we're we're a young country, you know, and this is a young constitution. And I will say, well, we, we used to be a young country. We're not that young anymore. And it's certainly not a young constitution. In fact, you know, most countries, well, I don't know about most countries, there are an awful lot of foundational documents that have been enacted, even, you know, in countries like France and places like that, way after our constitution. Uh, the only constitutions that I was aware of that mentioned guns and firearms besides our own were Mexico and Guatemala, and they don't have those constitutions anymore. Um, you know, there, there are things, there's a reverence that Americans have, a of default feeling that this is almost a divinely inspired document that I think makes it very hard to get them to join a conversation about, yeah, but what's not happening because we have this particular document and we're not willing or able to change it? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, we are one of the very few countries in the world that lives under an 18th century constitution. It is one of the oldest constitutions uh, that are still operational. Uh, many other countries had constitutions the 18th and 19th centuries, but essentially rewrote them. Uh, and many countries rewrote their constitutions um, after World War I and World War II uh, and adopted amendment rules uh, that were much uh, more, um, what made it much easier to amend the constitution uh, than Article V does in the U.S. Constitution. So we are very anomalous uh, in many respects. And to me, when I hear any justice, but of course it's Amy Coney Barrett right now, talk about originalism. The other thing that I think is the people who wrote those words, those originalistic words, lived lives that were probably closer in in um, attainments and, and advances to the Roman Empire than to 2020. I mean, they didn't have internal combustion engines or electricity or germ theory or radio or television or internet or air travel or Roombas. They had muzzle-loading guns that fired after a lot of coaxing, not guns that fire 40 rounds per minute. Uh, they didn't have anesthesia, sanitation, surgery. Uh, they wouldn't have no idea how an abortion would be performed uh, in 2020. 20, what that would even mean. I mean, to me, this is the problem with originalism is you're consulting a lot of, with a bunch of people in the past whose value sets are substantially different from our own, whose diversity departs significantly from what we think of as diversity, and who will just it would take lifetimes to update them on what's happened since then. Well, I think that those who uh, subscribe to originalism uh, believe that it's really the only way of legitimately applying the law because uh, it's the law as written and the meaning it had when it was written. Uh, and if you start applying other meanings, then you're bringing in people who may not be elected, specifically judges, uh, and who did not write the laws, uh, uh, bringing in new things, uh, and somehow that that makes it uh, illegitimate. And I think that you're uh, putting forth a different view, which is that having laws that really have no understanding of how we live now uh, are themselves illegitimate. And I think the real solution then, um, if you really want to make sure that the law is legitimate, uh, there has to be a way of updating it. Uh, and I think that's precisely, I mean, John Cornyn during 
the um, Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings uh, made specific reference uh, to the possibility of amendment. Um, the possibility of amendment is what keeps something old uh, legitimate because the idea is that if it doesn't really match up with the way that we're living our lives today, you can always fix it, you can always change it. Uh, but it becomes deeply problematic for democracy if we actually have a constitution that's effectively unchangeable. And many countries around the world, if you compare our amendment rule to amendment rules in other constitutions, including amendment rules that are in state constitutions in the United States, our amendment rule is effectively uh, ineffective. So, Julie, we've only got about a minute left, but I'll hand you the magic wand. So, uh, so change something. What would you change? The amendment rule. <laughs> so I do think that it's important to really start thinking about um, why we have a constitution that's so hard to change. And, um, and so to make proposals uh, to involve the people directly in uh, changing the constitution, perhaps through the ratification process, uh, it does seem to me that uh, all of the ways in which we make law uh, nationally uh, overemphasize uh, the representation of the states rather than the American people. Uh, but at some point between 1789 and now, um, we became a national people uh, rather than simply people represented through the states. And the Constitution needs to reflect that. And I think the first place to start is the amendment rule. Uh, and then once the amendment rule uh, is changed, uh, I think that opens up the possibility of making our basic institutions, such as the Senate, more representative uh, and the judiciary uh, less powerful. Uh, that mm. is, uh, there are many proposals to limit the judiciary, for instance, by having term limits on the Supreme Court. Yep. And because, because we've always understood that judges have life tenure, uh, because the Constitution provides for federal judges uh, keeping their positions during good behavior, uh, term limits would probably also require an amendment. Uh, and for amendments to be really democratic and possible, we would really have to start the amendment rule itself. All right. From your lips to God's ears, Julie Sook, thank you so much, uh, visiting professor of law at Yale Law School and professor of sociology and other stuff that I don't have time to say at the Graduate Center at the University of New York. Uh, thanks to everybody who listened. And let's go out with Hamilton. The notion of a nation we now get to build. For once in your life, take a stand with pride. I don't understand how you stand to the side.